Benjamin Franklin. You good, brother? You got it? If not, I'll grab the handheld. Turn to Daniel 7, please, if you haven't already. Benjamin Franklin, great thinker in the colonial days. Big part of founding of the country, Declaration of the Independence, etc. It's been said that he would, though he's not a believer himself, wasn't a believer. Hope that was rectified before he died. But it's been said that he would go listen to George Whitfield preach and go listen to him. And uh, knowing that he was not a believer and certainly no evangelical, somebody asked Benjamin Franklin, why do you print so much of Whitfield's sermons? Why do you listen to so many of his sermons? He had this booming voice Whitfield could preach, be heard for miles around. And I said, you, you don't believe any of it. And uh, to which he supposedly quipped back, yeah, but he sure does. Yeah, but he sure does. And I'll say uh, about the singing this morning, I would say to you, yeah, but you sure do. I mean, it may not be true that everybody in this house would be like us believers. They may be like Benjamin Franklin, a real educated version of a non-believer, a, a real accommodating version of a non-believer. You know, someone that's just, I'm not antagonistic toward evangelicals. They seem to raise nice families and be nice people. I appreciate the culture that they build. Maybe you're, not, maybe you're that way. But I say to you as a broken person that has received the gospel of Christ, Thinking kindly of Christians is not the same thing as being one. I say that you must go the way that each of us has to go. Regardless of what's presented on the outside, you must go the humble way, the way of the cross, of bowing your knee to the Lord and saying, I receive you. The Bible says that to all who receive Him, it gives the right to become children of God. So you have rights upon receiving Him. You have no rights prior to receiving Him. And unbelievers will say, as the end of John 3 says, they will have the wrath of God remaining upon them. We love John 3 for John 3.16, don't we? For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth Him should not perish but have everlasting life. A true statement if there ever has been one. But the section ends with the wrath of God remains on you if you do not receive this Son. A chapter must be taken in context. A chapter must be taken in context of the book, in context of the Gospels, in context of the entire book of books, the Bible. And so we start this morning with the fact that truth can be known. Truth can be known. Pilate was interviewing Jesus prior to carrying out the orders of the council to crucify Jesus and let Barabbas go. A travesty of justice if there ever has been one. And Pilate asked this classic little three-word question 
to Jesus? It's a wonderful little question, and as we're in this season leading up to Holy Week and reconsidering these themes, it might do you well and me well to think about it. The three, the three words is, what is truth? Question mark. What is truth? Well, what is truth? I mean, that's a deep philosophical question if there ever has been one. And Pilate just kind of throws it out there, lobs it up there as a middle-class ruler in the ancient Near East and throws it at Jesus. And Jesus, in his response, also worth considering, that Jesus had said previously, probably early and often, that he is truth personified. In fact, one answer he gives to his followers is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So truth is knowable because Jesus is knowable. Jesus declared himself to be this truth personified, and he went on to say, no one comes to the Father except by me. So there is no other way. Unbeliever, we invite you to come to the Father through trusting in Jesus Christ this very day. You do not know when your life will be demanded of you. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. It is an invitation with a shelf life. Because when you pass from these earthly scenes, the invitation is over and you will have met your Maker. Would that everybody in my hearing this morning receive Christ and walk with Him. And I'm going to treat you like you all have from this point forward, save a few comments, because the gathering is primarily for the saints, and saints are simply sincere believers in the Lord, Philippians 1.1 says. So don't let the word saint weird you out. I'm not going back in Roman Catholic history to pull out some sainthood. We are the saints of the Lord as believers, and I'm going to treat you like such. But we talk to unbelievers every Sunday, too, because we want you to come among us. But we cannot assume that you're among us. That's just not how the truth of the Word of God reads. So we must hold out a hand, an invitation. And if you want to talk more about that, see me after church between the doors, talk to one of the other leaders of the church. Find somebody that looks like they've been around longer. They'll point you in the right direction because we want to talk with you about truth. This whole sermon is about truth. A gospel refrain of Jesus is that he had more truth than they were ready to hear. He would sometimes say that. So truth implies a kind of trust. Growing as saints of the Lord or being sanctified as saints of the Lord requires an implied trust. Part of our job in spiritual growth, I think, in sanctification is being ready to hear more truth each time back around in the Word. To blur truth is of no value to us. Blurring the truth sometimes states our consciences when we don't want to apply the Word of God based on what it actually says. But blurring the truth is of no value to us if we embrace the true statement of the truth, which is the truth will set you free. So we ought be more ready to receive truth now than when we first believed. We should move from a baby's diet of spiritual milk to a more mature person's diet of solid spiritual food. And if something's wrong with that growth process, we ought to go back to the place where we got off track and get back on track. Because the Lord wants to grow you. A clear doctrine of salvation is you're not only justified, but you're being sanctified. You're being grown. You're not only made right in God's eyes. You not only have rights now, but you are, you are being developed. You're being grown. That's where we get the word discipleship or, or learner. You're learning. You're growing. So sometimes truth 
that is for living helps us to deny comfort, causes us to, to pursue liberty over comfort, pursue freedom. It gives us perspective that helps us to be patient, to persevere in the Christian life, be patient with God's unfolding plan. I must admit, before we get into Daniel proper, just to kind of frame this concept of truth, I want to say one more thing. There are hard truths, truths that are hard to hear, truths that are hard to live. I wrote a few of them down. You can't fully keep from getting sick, no matter how hard you try. You wind up getting sick. It's inconvenient. Sometimes it's, it's even life-threatening. You know there's war going on in the world. There's almost always world war going on in the world. You're familiar with it more right now because it's in your face every single day. Christians are persecuted around the world. I think particularly maybe of North Korea right now, but that's not the only place, far from the only, only place. Your body aches when you get up in the morning. That's a hard truth, right? I wish it wouldn't. Change your diet, you might make some temporary stays, but the reality is the body aches. It's part of aging. You can't get it all done, no matter how hard you try. You know this frustration? Hard truth, can't get it all done. People let you down. You let people down. One of the philosophers said anciently that uh, be kind to everyone you meet, for everyone you meet is facing a harder battle. You didn't get it, did you? There it came, yeah, light bulb. It's not only that people let you down, you let people down. And you know what? Probably the most painful, if we get right down to it, and one of the reasons we lash out the most is the hard truth, we let ourselves down. Don't you hate it when you let yourself down? These are hard truths. And I think Daniel 7 speaks to it. So Daniel, to kind of, kind of give you the lay of the land, Daniel, in his revelatory dream section, which is chapters 7 through 12, writes down truth. Daniel 7 is, is a hinge in the book of Daniel, pivoting from the narrative story section of Daniel in chapters 1 to 6 to a prophetic or an apocalyptic section of literature in Daniel. No less scripture, just a different type of text, a different genre, if you want to use a $10 word, from narrative to apocalyptic. But it really matters because if you don't shift the way, the lens in which you read the text from narrative to apocalyptic, you'll make all kinds of mistakes and you won't be able to rightly apply the text. So you have to make that shift. Differently, the vast majority of Revelation is apocalyptic literature, save a few chapters. And so now we're pivoting into a section that's apocalyptic. It's filled with images. It's, it's filled with a big idea that's then elucidated by all kinds of evocative, symbolistic images. And so you need to think that way as you go into this text. And I'm trying to prime you to do that. There are four visions in Daniel, chapter 7, 8, 9, and then 10 through 12. And this constitutes the first of them. The visions are given to Daniel in times that overlap both the reigns of Babylon and the reign of Persia. You'll notice that as you look into the introduction to each of the visions. You will then be able to say that Chapters 7 through 12, in many ways, restart the chronology or, or lay parallel underneath the narrative that we've already read in terms of chronology. We're not going all the way back to the beginning of Daniel's life. In fact, we're probably in 553 B.C. under the reign of King Belshazzar, who's likely the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar, the one that exiled Daniel and took him away from his homeland. So this vision was given in that time frame we're going to read. It's a text type that's more like poetry than prose, if you want to think of it that way. 
So I think I've said enough about the text. Uh, we're going to now read the text, and we're going to look for just two points today, two unassailable truths. And the, the first one is that the world is scarier than you think, and that the second one that will come in verses 9 through 14 is the Savior stronger than you think. So the world is scarier than you think, verses 1 to 8, and the Savior's stronger than you think, verses 9 to 14. So, so here we go, Daniel 7, verses 1 to 14. This is God's Word. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from, the, from one another. The first was like a lion, and it had eagles as wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told to rise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man... And a mouth speaking great things. Verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man." And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. May God bless the reading of his word and administer grace unto those who hear. Our first unassailable truth from this text, a truth for living is the world is scarier than you think. The world is scarier than you think. In fact, humanity is less redeemable than you might imagine because the world is filled with humans and the world is scarier than you think. This should speak to the doctrine of total depravity and it should hit close to home as we consider the truth of this text. Perhaps this is not a hard sell to you that the world is scarier than you think. Given the nature of recent events, you're probably more attuned to the scariness of the world today than you were, say, even six or 12 months ago. But the world is full of scary 
events and is a scary place in no small part than because of power grabs. Humanity, in its more base sense, is constantly vying for position and power. Unfortunately, sometimes that leaks into the church, right? Humility commands different. It shouldn't be that way for us. Worldly ways can be quite discouraging. Some can't embrace the truth of the bad. Some of you struggle because you see the world through rose-colored glasses. And to an extent, this is a good thing. It is good to be able to see more of what the Lord is doing in the world than what the enemy is doing in the world. However, until the Prince of Peace comes in, consummates his kingdom, there's a lot of things that the enemy is doing in this world, flailing around. And to put our fingers in our ears, not to hear, to close our eyes, not to see, does not make it any less true that the world is scarier than you might want to think. And this is critical to overcoming our daily fears and living in light of the truth. You must face truth to live in light of it. Some cannot embrace the truth of the good. All they see is bad. In Daniel 7, 1 to 8, really Daniel 7 as a whole balances this out because it shows us both. But seven, Daniel 7, 1 to 8 shows us just how bad it can be. Daniel is asleep in his bed in Babylon. He's in his room. So picture yourself in a room, asleep. He's probably long since made peace with the fact, at this point he's in his 50s or 60s now, he's probably long since made peace with the fact that he's not going to see his homeland again, and if he does, he's not going to be healthy very long after he sees it. He's seen the conqueror of his people come and die, Nebuchadnezzar. Now his inferior grandson, apparently, Belshazzar, is ruling. And Daniel kind of has to put up with this guy. If you want to think about it that way, read Daniel chapter 5 for more information about that. In fact, Daniel 4 and 5 kind of tells two sides of a similar story. And Daniel, for that matter, Daniel um, has a kind of symmetrical outlay that way, not just with 4 and 5, but also with chapter 2 and chapter 7, where we are right now, as well as with 3 and 6. To say this very simply, and here's where it's relevant, Daniel chapter 2 outlines the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had that had to be interpreted. And in Daniel chapter... That had to hurt. Bonked that head hard, didn't he? That had to hurt, buddy. I've done that before. One of our kids bonked their head on a pew. It's hard. God help him. By the way, we welcome our children in the church. Hope that you figured that out by now. If you have not, you're in the wrong place. This is a very child-friendly church. There's lots of kids everywhere. But pray that he's okay. Now, what I want to say about Daniel 2 and 7 and the way that it links together is that Daniel 2 outlines the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, which Daniel then interprets for Nebuchadnezzar. You may may be remembering this. Now here's Daniel having this dream under the domain of a different king in the same empire of Babylon. He's having this dream... And he needs it interpreted. It's a dream of similar content, though, because of the four kingdoms. Now, I toyed with preaching all the way through Daniel 7 today. But as I saw the volume of the content, I thought, no, 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 let's make it two two sections. Let's break it off at, at verse 14. However, you would profit from reading the end of Daniel this afternoon, not only to prepare for the next sermon, but also to get the full interpretation, divine interpretation, of Daniel 7, 1 to 8. Because like, it gives a divine narration of how to interpret this. But I'm basically going to give you that in a whip stitch anyway, since we're not reading through the end. So let me do that. 
as best as we can tell, insofar as it creates a chronology, and more about that in a minute, what you find in verses 1 through 8 in this dream of Daniel that, that shook him out of his sleep, and then he wrote the summary of down, what you find is four great beasts coming from the four ends of the sea. Now, the, scary, the sea is the definition of scary in ancient literature, and it's no different in biblical literature. The sea is a scary place, and it still is, really. I mean, you wouldn't want to be just out to sea without a boat. I mean, it's kind of a scary place. It's still scary. But it's not as scary today because of technology, development of ships. You might think you could hop on a ship and sail across the ocean, and you're going to be fine. Back then, this was one of the scariest places to be, even though sometimes you had to be there. So to think of the sea and the, the taming of the sea and the control of the sea, if you think of beasts in the sea, you don't think of, of, of distinguished humanity or spiritual humanity. You think of the basest kind of humanity, beastly humanity coming from, if you look at a compass, the north, south, east, and west ends of the scariest part of the world, which is the sea. So this imagery is to, it's to bring to mind fear. It's to tell you this, the world's a scary place. That's why, that's why the first point is saying what it is. It's a scary place. And it's dovetailing out of chapter 2, because, but it's not chapter 2 because this is Daniel needing interpretation instead of Daniel giving it. And so with the help of God, he does, he does get that. But this scariness of these, of these four kingdoms bears, bears thinking about and reflecting on. So if you think of it as we preached back then, we'll do it again now with Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. If you think of it that way for a moment, then the, the north, south, east, and west, then the, the first would be Babylon. We've already said it. The second sequential king mentioned seems to be Persia. It ate the flesh of the people. Scary. If, if Babylon's symbol was a lion, then Persia's was a bear, then Greece's was a leopard in this text, perhaps. And we know like Alexander the Great conquered all the way to India and died young and his kingdom was divided up and all kinds of stuff happened. Eventually the Roman Empire, likely the fourth beast in this particular description, ruled the world and the Romans ruled even when Jesus was born. And they ruled the world when Jesus was born in the first century AD. So these beasts seem to grow more powerful and they seem to diminish humanity as created in the image of God. They seem to devalue life, to utilitarianize life, what they can get out of it as they go, rather than valuing life. It seems to get worse and worse, not better, and better in this description. And they thus blaspheme the Creator, the Ancient of Days, that's introduced in our second section of Scripture. Two scenes in this text, one vision. It's one whole vision to Daniel. Two scenes, I'm breaking that off at verse 9 there, the text does. So they, they, this, this scariness of this, with them devaluing life, even sometimes setting themselves up as gods, is, is, is roughing in and rounding out this description of the current and present world order. And horns symbolize power. So when it starts talking about horns, we're talking about rulers, kings, power. And there's this little horn mentioned in verse 8 that really carries a lot of freight later in this chapter and, and beyond. And it will reemerge in the divine interpretation in the last section of this chapter, as, as I've just said. So this little horn will wind up throwing, overthrowing three of the kings of those ten that are mentioned in the fourth beastly section. So likely in the Roman Empire. 
and speaking blasphemous things against God. Ian Duguid is a very good commentator. I'm just going to read a section he has on this because of how important the literature and the history is here to grasping the meaning of the text. He says, he observes this, Until the coming of the new age, the darkness will not lift significantly. It is therefore better to take the number of the beasts as representing a symbol of completeness rather than a particular number of world empires. On such a view, the message of Daniel 7 is that life in this present age will always be this way until the end of the age. It is striking that the superpowers of our own age still customarily represent themselves by predatory animals. Think of the Russian bear, the Chinese dragon. The beasts of the present world order may change their shape as centuries pass, but their violence and lust for power continues. Nebuchadnezzar turns into a Darius who becomes Alexander the Great and then an Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucid king, who brutally oppressed the Jews in the mid-2nd century B.C. These fierce rulers are in turn followed by a Nero and a Domitian. Their fires of persecution continue to be stoked centuries later by the Inquisition. In the last century, we've seen a manifestation of the beast in the persons of Hitler, Stalin, Kim Jong-un, etc. The frightening beasts of this age have been like the gas chambers, the killing fields of Cambodia, Rwanda. They're still tormenting the saints in the Sudan and China and other parts of the world. We mentioned North Korea earlier. The continual presence of the beast in our world ought not surprise us because every human manifestation of evil is simply a reflection of the work of the great dragon, Satan himself. In Revelation 13, though, and I want you to key in on this because it's important, we're going to see a beast rising from the scary sea representing the persecuting power of the Antichrist, a beast that combines aspects of each of Daniel's creatures into one, a lion, bear, leopard with ten horns. Whatever our location in space and time, frightening monsters array themselves against the Lord and His anointed. We inhabit a world in which there is good reason to have trouble sleeping at night sometimes. As Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So before we look at that composite vision in Revelation 13 of what we're talking about in Daniel 7, 1-8, I just want to remind you of the weapons of our warfare as the Apostle Paul taught us under the illumination of the Holy Spirit, as recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-6. through 6. And what it says is, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So we destroy arguments, and every lofty opinion sounds like truth, right? Truth. We're arguing for truth. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take captive thought, every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So this is the way that the Apostle Paul argues in light of the new covenant in our weapons of warfare. But Revelation 13, 1-4 shows this composite beast vision, a force to be reckoned with across time, because really of the trans-temporal or the across-time nature of apocalyptic literature and the elasticness of apocalyptic literature across time, it has a certain elasticity, one argues. So here, Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 to 4, because I think it will help you here. I saw a beast rising out of the sea, and then, or with rather, ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Blasphemy. Verse 2, And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. 
One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon. Notice this counterfeit trinity we talked about back when we worked through Revelation. They worshipped the dragon, so it's an issue of worship. It's always an issue of worship, by the way. For he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? So we see in John's apocalyptic vision in this last book of the Bible in Revelation, all four images referring to a single kingdom, probably Rome. In this kind of literature, these ungodly icons cross over barriers of time and space. They run through centuries in various kingdoms that oppose God and have relevancy even today. So we have to get used to this idea within the genre of apocalyptic and look at it that way. So with that literature and history lesson in mind, and I admit it was a lot of literature and history lesson, in order to get into the explanation and not alone, let alone now the application of a text, let's look at the application of this first point. The world is scarier than you think. So, so what do we do with that? Just a couple, of, a couple of applications, a couple of observations that are applications. Uh, one of them is no Pollyanna stuff. The American novel written in 1913 that made famous the idea and the concept of Pollyanna is apt here. Pollyanna is a blindly optimistic person. It's come to mean like a person that's blindly optimistic. Look, beasts are bad. States can be coercive in their power. Test the spirits. Learn to trust in your church members in ways that you might not have the privilege of trusting elsewhere. And even then you can be let down. But we have covenanted to profess the lordship of Christ and live in a way that they have not. So this is a pretty good starting point for your relationships, wouldn't you agree? It's no Pollyanna stuff with the wickedness of the world. Everybody's grabbing for power. There's lots of scary stuff. And I believe we honor the Lord when we do it with our eyes wide open. And when we're honest in our assessments. Now, you can become jaded with that, right? Shrewd as serpents, but also innocent as doves, Jesus told his disciples. So it's not just a matter of being shrewd and having your eyes wide open. You also must be innocent. I think the next part of a text really lends itself to that hopefulness. But no Pollyanna stuff. No, no blind optimism, even if optimism is helpful. Another application, I think, is it's, it's, just that, it's not just that governing authorities trend badly. But people trend badly. This is the doctrine of total depravity. People outside of Christ are not basically good getting better. The regenerative work of the Holy Spirit inside of a person fundamentally changes the person's orientation Christward. It fundamentally changes the person's orientation toward looking up instead of navel-gazing and looking out and seeing what I can conquer. So the scariness of the world really plays into what the sum total of the worldly civilizations are, which is humanity, which plays down into communities, which subsidiarily breaks down into each of us. And so outside of Christ, we see the fallenness of humanity on display, even no matter how much we try to cover it up, and the frustration of the depravity totally of man. And only God in His grace can save such irredeemable people. And that's the reason the gospel is so powerful. But we must say, by way of application from this first point, we must say that things trending bad to worse should not surprise us in terms of degenerating governing powers. It happens. It happens across history. There's upstarts and downs and upstarts and downs. 
and so forth. That's basically, though, what Daniel knew, and he still did good in the society in which he lived. He still followed the counsel of the prophet Jeremiah and vied for the welfare of Babylon. So there's something there. There's something for us as sojourners, as strangers and exiles, to use the language that Peter co-ops from the Old Testament, as Christians of a new covenant operating in the local church, making a difference, though, in the world around us. There is something there that Daniel can instruct us about, particularly because he did a whole lot of good in this really raunchy government. He really did. Did a lot of good. So, in that sense, we can learn. An application also is, and I already alluded to it, but I'll say it plainly, the world is full of power grabs we should not be. Our unity depends on spiritual fruit. We are more than conquerors in the Christ that is elucidated in the next six verses. We pursue unity of a spirit through the bond of peace. If we bite one another, Galatians says, and keep biting one another, we should not be surprised when we devour one another. The Christian ethic calls us not to live the way that these beasts live. We are being made into a truer, original form of humanity because of the regenerative work of the Spirit inside of each of us. So power grabs should be looked at as opportunistic nonsense for us as Christians, particularly in the church. I'll I'll put put this really plainly, and then we'll move to the second point. Very plainly. You cannot speak truth to power if you yourself are power hungry. You cannot speak truth to power if you yourself are power hungry. Charles Spurgeon made it very well known. When he taught in his pastor's college and to the believers that he taught that the political realm will always overpromise and underproduce to you. Vest not yourself in it, however much benefit you find in being faithful to serve in it. And so, I think John 16.33 probably hinges our two points the best. Think, think of that verse that you've, many of you perhaps have memorized across time. It says, in this world you'll have troubles, you'll have tribulation. That's the first part of this text. But the second part of this text is, take heart, I have what? Overcome the world. So this is our second point then. After troubles is the overcoming. It's a microcosm of the entire of the visions in Daniel, really of the entire plot line of the Bible. It's our second unassailable truth is that the Savior is stronger than you think. The Savior is stronger than you think. This speaks to the total creative sovereignty of God as your maker, and it also speaks to the two natures of Christ as both human and divine. At this point, it might just be helpful to reorientate ourselves by reading chapter 7 of Daniel, verses 9 through 14. So let's do that now. It says in Daniel 7, 9 to 14, As I looked, and this is the same vision for Daniel, As I looked, he now shifts from the scary sea to something up above. Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, his hair of his head like pure wool, signifying wisdom on his head, signifying purity. It says, the throne, of his, this throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. Fire is a symbol for judgment. He brings righteous judgment. The stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and a thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. This is myriads of servants of angels serving him. Daniel's going to consult one of the angels, probably Gabriel, and that's the second half of Daniel. We won't get into that today, but that's 
That's the, that's, this is the vision. This is the, the ambiance. It's the feel. This is what he's seeing in his dream, right? He gets up to write about it. It's magnificent. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. Perhaps the book of, I mean, God knows everything that goes on. Verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. Back to that horn, that little horn. As I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and was given over to be burned with fire, judgment. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion, a popular word in this chapter, dominion, kingdom, their dominion was taken away. Bang, taken away quickly. But the lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, so all relationships, all nations and languages, all space, everywhere, and all time, it will never pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed, so it is indestructible. So we are describing God's everlasting kingdom at this point. We are lifting our eyes up. We're seeing a vision of the throne room of heaven. Take heart, Jesus said. Not only in this life will you have troubles, unassailable truth, number one, the world's a scary place. But number two, I have overcome the world. I win. Done. There is this unassailable truth, and it's really the only way to overcome your daily fears is to live in light of a truth that is seen only by faith and not by physical sight. And that is this vision that Daniel links us into of the Ancient of Days providing, presiding over the coronation of Jesus the Christ at the ascension, coming on the clouds, waiting to come again. He sits at the right hand of God, reigning now and coming to consummate His kingdom. And so there is an oughtness to your worship of Christ now. There is an oughtness to your recognizing Him as King of everything now. I mentioned it just a minute ago, but this text kind of reminds us to break up the application a little bit throughout this second point. It reminds us that God sees everything you do. Like Nothing is lost on Him at all. I wonder today if you... If you live as if you think God is overlooking what you do. I wonder if you live as if you think that God is overlooking what you do. He isn't. He sees it all. The whole thing. So, so the beauty for the Christian is that Christ has atoned for your sins. All of them. The ones you've committed, the ones you will commit. The beauty is that Christ, that, that the Lord judges you, God judges you, based on Christ's work on your behalf. That's the gospel. The good news of the gospel is the rights that you have is you've been made right, which has freed you from the wrath of God on you, which means when you are judged, you will not be judged based on what you've done with regard to your justification, you are judged based on what Christ has done on your behalf, which makes Daniel 7.13 pivotal to this entire economy of the story of salvation. But nothing's lost on God. And this is why, even for you as a justified Christian, Romans will warn you not to presume 
upon God's kindness. Not to presume, not to, in a different place in Romans, not to perpetuate your besetting sins more and more as if it adds to the value of grace, that you might get more and more grace. Don't sin more that grace may abound more. To put it differently, for all of the security that you have wrapped, cloaked in the salvation that Christ has provided for you, there is an implied oughtness to your warring against sins of the flesh. That's the reason why, like Brother Adam did earlier, he led us in a prayer of confession for our sins. Why? Because you sinned last week. Certainly the assurance of pardon, but I'm not accentuating that right at this moment. What will we do next Sunday? Because you will sin this week. We will have a prayer of confession. I get tired of that prayer of confession. God gets tired of you sinning too. <laughs> right? I mean, let's just get real. You know, I'll put it in a kind of provocative way. Sins are satanic. God doesn't sin. Sins are repulsive. We must make no safe haven for the sin for which Jesus had to die that we might live. Man, you people are serious. No, it's just a vision of God that's so compelling. How can you coddle up to the very thing that nailed him to the cross? You know, the books in this section remind us that our deeds in this life right now, they matter. Like there's, there's, there's weight to how we live. God cares what we do. And, and the books remind us of our need for a Savior. That's the assurance of pardon every week. And, and, and they remind us really, now in the gravity of all this, they remind us of the strength of the Savior, Right? I mean, my strength is fleeting as I age, and yours is too. Christ is not. He is eternally strong. His reign will not be called into question. It won't pass like a ship in the night, like these empires and these kingdoms. It is fixed from the foundations of the earth. The one that made you will sustain you and keep you. This kingdom is rock solid. But you don't see it yet. But it's compelling. It's interesting, the blasphemous beast is shown as judged right in the middle of this scene, this second scene in Daniel 7, 1 to 14. The second scene being verses 9 to 14. But right in the middle there, you see the blasphemous beast shown as judged. It's interesting placement. You might see offset text followed by not offset text, followed by offset text. But it says that Daniel looked in verse 11... And he saw the blasphemous beast that was speaking, and then he was, he was destroyed. It's, it's interesting compactness of the whole thing. Uh, the other beasts resurgent have lesser life a little longer. The second scene of this one vision, I, I, can't, I can't resolve it all for you, just to say it's interesting. It's right there in the middle. The blasphemous beast, kind of like the composite beast in Revelation 13, uh, not, not, not a match for God. Not a match for God, right? And, and, and so Daniel saw something of the sweet strength of the Savior in a world filled with darkness. Now, we have to pivot because of the revelation that we have, the, 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 the more Scripture we have than Daniel had. Daniel was interacting with the Law and the Prophets as far as he had them. But we have to interact in terms of the theological spectrum of data that we have a little bit with uh, the New Testament and the Gospel of Mark. So let me just rattle off a, a few times Jesus uses his favorite self-designation playing off of, pulling from Daniel 7.13, the Son of Man, 
and using it in his earthly ministry and to describe his purpose. So, so listen, like, for example, it's 13 times in Mark. I'll just pick out a half dozen of them or so. Mark 2, 10, 11. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, and that was the ground for pick up your bed and go home. Rise and walk. Healing ministry of Jesus. A forced haste of the healing that he will do ultimately when he comes again. The lame will all walk. Mark 2, 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Mark 2, 28. So the Son of Man governs the rhythms of our weeks. So Mark 8, 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Son of Man. Well, we're not looking at it, but you can, you can write these down if you want to. That's Mark 8, 31. In Mark chapter 8 also, verse 38 for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Interesting use. The Son of Man, don't be ashamed of him now. He's, he won't be ashamed of you then. He's going to come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There's innumerable angels looking on in the vision of Daniel 7. How about Mark 10.45? We love to quote this. But think of it in light of the Daniel designation. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But what's his favorite self-designation there? The Son of Man. The Son of Man came. So he's an example for us in that way. Mark 13, 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds... Like almost like a compass. We're almost picking up a little bit on Daniel there in the thought process. From the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds. So this is Mark 13, 26, and, and, and the beat goes on. But this is a worthy phrase, a phrase worthy to be studied, Son of Man. Because Jesus is the ultimate man, the God-man. I, I, I appreciate what Don Carson wrote about this verse. He said, the expression Son of Man is a Semitic way of saying human being. Hang, hang with us for a moment. The expression son of man is a Semitic way of saying human being. The other kingdoms are beastly and inhuman. Here, the reins of power rest in the hands of a human being as God meant, to, meant a human being to be. Let me say that last part again because it's, it's very well put. It says, here the reins of power rest in the hands of a human being as God meant a human being to be. Juxtaposing the first and second parts, the two scenes within the vision Daniel has in Daniel 7, 1 to 14. This is the, this is the ultimate man. Jesus describing, described and being described, described himself as the God-man, both man and divine. And that's why he was able to make atonement for your sins and to become your advocate because he is this son of man. And admittedly, as, as, as Carson admitted, I, I admit, admittedly, the phrase son of man can be talking about a mere man. But in this case, context demands that we see this as the God man. So Daniel 7, 4, 7, 13 foreshadows the events after the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. 
But David Helm says it like this in his little commentary on it. He says, The ascension was the moment in human history when the kingdoms of this world were defeated, albeit with the shadow of their power existing for a prolonged season. This was the point in human history when Jesus entered into the heavens, stood before the Ancient of Days, and received a kingdom that demanded the allegiance of all peoples, nations, and languages. This was the moment when he sat down at the right hand of the Father and began to reign. This was the moment when God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under earth, and every tongue confess Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, like Philippians 2, 9-11 says. Jesus predicted all of this by referring to Daniel. The, the way, the weight of Daniel 7, 13 and 14. So the Savior is stronger than you think. His dominion is everlasting. It's an unshakable dominion, indestructible. In fulfilling the Great Commission, there will be all kinds of, all type of people from all types of nations and languages. So we need to be very careful with our sense of national fidelity as we're considering our brothers and sisters throughout the world. You can be very proud of your freedoms and very proud of your nation without short-selling the people that are saved in other nations and that will be with us in heaven. Because you will have people from every tribe and tongue in heaven, and you will not have every person that's in the 330 million citizenry of America in heaven. And you need to get used to that, because that's just Bible. So if we make this gathering strictly about our affections for one country, we miss Daniel 7, 13, and 14 in a willful and obviously rebellious way. You must read Daniel 7, 13, and 14 and catch the Great Commission in it. Catch that the Great Commission in it is for every tribe and tongue and people. We didn't write it. He did. We wouldn't have written it this way. And I believe that is the reason that it is written the way that it is. We tend to think too good of the human heart. And so then, therefore, we think too weak of the needed strength of the Savior. But our problems are so much more pervasive than we understand and imagine. And so we have a Savior that has preemptively understood that and presents himself as he is, which is much more powerful than we think to need. What is man that you are mindful of him, the Psalter said. What is man that he's mindful of us? God is mindful of us in that he sent the God-man, his only son, to die, that in receiving him we might have salvation. Truth can be hard to hear. I said it from the start, we can't help but getting sick. There's war that we can't help but have going on, persecution in the global church. Body aches, can't get everything done. People let you down, you let people down, you let yourself down. So I think this text really helps us by giving us these two unassailable truths and helping us to see a truer, ultimate humanity and where Christ is taking us through His work on our behalf. I think of it like this. We will see the king coming with the clouds of heaven like a son of man for his consummation and his second, his second coming for which we must pray for and hasten the day of, and it will be good. And so with so much bad in the world right now, we need a vision of the good. With, 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 with so much bad, we need a vision of the good. We, we need to trust this good son of man. With so much ugly in the world, we need a vision of the beautiful. Turn your gaze toward this beautiful son of man admittedly by faith for now, but your faith will be vindicated with sight one day. So turn your gaze from your navel and from your power grabs and look to the sun and see the beauty of the sun. He is so beautiful. He's what humanity was supposed to be before the fall. He's more than that as the God-man. He is our Lord. 
And the Ancient of Days presides over this, and it's very good. With so many lies, we need a vision of the truth. So follow total truth personified, this Son of Man, Jesus Christ. I plead with you this morning to put your trust in the Son of Man for your salvation. Nothing else will satisfy you. And the Son of Man is not asking you to go where no man has gone before. He went before us in this mission, in this great commission. He gives us the strength to labor, to present everyone maturing Christ. He gives us this strength for this. It is His energo, His power. He's a Savior leading you down paths of righteousness for His name's sake. In conclusion, consider Mark 14, where Jesus uses His self-designation when He's on trial before the Jewish council. He essentially seals His conviction by quoting Daniel 7.13. Listen for it. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Christ said, I am. And then he pontificates briefly. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. You can almost just see their faces exploding at this moment. And you will see Daniel 7.13 coming with me. I am, I'm, a, I'm the fulfillment of this prophecy. He fully self-consciously knew what he was saying. And he said it anyway. What courage. What an ultimate man. Not weak, but strong. You'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And the high priest, the priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. Strange use of language in the face of blasphemous beasts, isn't it? What's your decision? They condemned him, deserving death. And they spit on him. They covered their faces. They strike him. They say, prophesy now, Jesus. And he just, like a lamb that could have been a lion in that moment, goes like a lamb to the slaughter, goes to the cross. And, and he received the blows. And, and there's no other way that the scariness of this world could be usurped with the strength of the Savior, but through the cross. It's for you. Let's take a half minute and ponder that self-designation, this glorious truth.